Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com with the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest this week is the one and only Jackie Martin. Yes, Jackie the Joke Man. Jackie, how you doing? I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? (laughs) Oh, really, Rodney? (laughs) What was it like last week? I don't know. I don't know. No, actually, uh, the world is coming to an end. And the epidemic is completely out of control. Uh, the president is the worst piece of shit I could ever, ever, ever imagine. But I live on the water. I actually went swimming again yesterday on November 10th or whatever it was. And I got a beautiful girlfriend and I haven't missed a meal. The only, my only complaint is that I'm gaining weight because there's nothing to do except eat. Because I stopped well, masturbating, I think, 1984. Now, don't you live uh, in Long Island? I live right on Long Island Sound. Long Island Sound, and you went in the water. Yes, and it was it was cold, but it was fine. It was well, cold, well, but it was, was fine. What was your motivation? I mean, it's not quite January first for Polar Bear Day. No, you know what? Uh, every year, you you start jumping in the water, like in you know middle of May, end of May, beginning of June, and it's very cold. But you jump in because then, with each passing week, it gets warmer and warmer and warmer. And the truth of it is, the Long Island Sound is a huge body of water, so it holds holds the the heat for a long time. I mean, it was it was cold, but it was cold just like it's cold in the beginning of June. You know, I mean, I I didn't really swim. I usually swim. But it was just a little too cold on my hands. So I just jumped in and thrashed around a little bit uh, for the fun of it. Because, I mean, it, it, there's nothing like it. It just jumps, jump starts your body and you come out. I have a nice outdoor shower and uh, it just resets your clock. It's just something fun to do. It's also something fun to talk about. What else am I going to do? Wait, if it's middle of November. Are you done with the sound until May? Or are we going to see you in the sound? Yeah, no, again? no. I, I, you know, but it's funny. I got a next door neighbor, Phyllis, who's delightful. Phyllis and Bill. 
And every time she goes in, of course, somebody called me today and said, guess who was in the water this morning? I'm like, leave me alone. You know, it's like a, like almost like a pee match, you know, but I don't really care. You know, I just, I just, if I feel like it, if the sun's out and it's bright, you jump in. And when you jump out, it's, it's warm. Even if it's not warm out, the sun is just a, a miracle worker. You know, you have to live on, you know. People that live underwater understand that it, it's, it, it sounds silly, but it really isn't. You know, it's really, it's quite delightful. Now, that begs the question, if you live on the Sound, uh, I know I grew up in Connecticut uh, a couple of miles I from the Sound. I look directly across at Stanford. Okay. The question is, though, frequently you have situations where there is a storm and then the water comes up into your house. What happens there? Not here. I, I live in Bayville. On the North Shore of Long Island, and Bayville is a bowl. It's actually a bowl, and I live at the top of the bowl. It's funny. I'm here, and then two doors down from me is my ex-wife's house and then her other house. And uh, in Sandy, I got no water, just like a half inch of water. I had to throw away my, my basement rugs. But I, I, I'm so high up that I even had the balls to have a rug in the basement. I got an inch of water. 150, 200 feet down the street, my ex-wife got four feet in each of her houses because it's a bowl and it, it, it's, it's elusive how it, how it's shaped, but it's, uh, it's amazing. But you know, you never know what's going to happen. You know, in Sandy, um, we were waiting for the second high tide and we thought we we're going to be wiped out and the wind shifted and we hardly lost a, a branch off a tree. And if the wind hadn't shifted, you know, at the second high tide, we expected to get wiped out. And I was over at my friend's house. He lives in a big, huge, you know, uh, mansion up on the hill. And we're waiting for that second high tide. And it, it just, it was like Y2K, you know, it just never happened. And if the wind hadn't shifted, we would have gone the way of Rockaway, which was flattened, you know. It's all, you know, it's all... It's all a roll of the dice, no matter what you're talking about. It's all a damn roll of the dice, you know? Okay. How many times have you been married? A hundred. <laughs> well, this ex-wife, you've been divorced from her for how long? What do you mean, how many times have I been married? I've been married. I was married to Nancy once, and uh, we lasted, uh, we were married 13 years, but we got married. We lived together for seven years, and then we got married, and then we got divorced. So we made it uh, together to a total of like a little over 20 years. But she lives two doors away, and her and her boyfriend are my girlfriend and mine's best friends. And we eat dinner together and have you know eat meals at each other's houses. And uh, she's just a wonderful, wonderful girl. I think I think my girlfriend actually likes her more than she likes me. Well, and, that begs uh, you know, the I'm, question. I'm still, in love, I'm still in love with every girl I ever dated. Okay, know? but why and, did you get a divorce then? Because we would have killed each other. You know, it, 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 there was a lot of, lot of uh, personal stuff. A lot of, uh, you know, it's you know, I, I, it was in my book. You know, we tried, uh, we we couldn't have a baby, so we did in vitro fertilization long before anybody really knew what it was and and howard was anti you know science for having babies so not only was it an incredibly pressurized situation where i had to sneak around and we were just getting to be really well known 
but we failed six times. And there was, if you know anybody that's ever been through it, there's nothing more heart wrenching in the world. And this is the early nineties. This is long before there were chat rooms and emails and people that you could commiserate with. You know, misery loves company. You know, if you go through the worst thing in the world, if there's another couple or another person or somebody to just bounce off of, it just changes the whole, uh, the whole situation. And it was, you know, so that did a lot of damage. I mean, you know, lots of reasons, you know, two strong personalities. And, you know, we were very good friends for years. And then she came to work with me and we worked together and then we couldn't not fuck. So we slept together and then we were partners and then we lived together and then we got married. So we kind of were on a sign curve and now we're back to being friends and it's all, uh, it's all wonderful. Because that begs the question you said earlier, you're still in love with all your old girlfriends. Have you looked them all up online? Have you made any contact? You know, it really is funny. You wind up circling back. I mean, I had circled back, you know, a lot of girls I went back and revisited and found. And uh, it was so much fun. Um, But yes, yes, you know, and and it's fun to be in contact with people. And I talked to them and, you know... uh, some from long ago, some from not that long ago, but it's, I think it's just fascinating. It's so fascinating. What's really fascinating is when you get on the phone with a, an old friend, it it still never fails to astound me how you instantly are there. If it's somebody, you know, I mean, I, I shared a lot of laughs and a lot of closeness with a lot of people. It wasn't really in passing. Like, you know, we would dig in and, uh, Two minutes on the phone. It's like the years just are not there. You know, time, time is, is the most incredible thing. I can remember so much of everything that happened my first two years in comedy and the next 38 years are a blur. I know nothing, but I could tell you everything that happened because in those formative years, you know, and it's just like, I don't know how, how old are you? I'm 67. Okay, so you probably know. Somebody says, oh, Jackie, when's the last time you saw Bob? Oh, I just, I I saw him five years ago. And like, <laughs> yeah, I know. It's amazing you, you, time goes it, by, it's really. A little, it's a little scary, you know? And I'm like, when somebody says 1998, I said, wow, that's not for a long time. No, it was a, a long time ago, you know? You know, and being stupid doesn't help either. <laughs> Okay, we all are victims of that. But, you know, when you reconnect, there are a lot of stories about reconnecting with old girlfriends where it rekindles some romance. Did you have any of that experience? Maybe you they wanted it and you didn't, or maybe you did and they didn't. No, because yeah, I, uh, I was married and, uh, and there was so many girls around here. Um, there, there were no real romances that I would have wanted to really revisit. I got so many stories of friends that that it's such interesting, you know, in, interesting, interesting things that happened for good or for bad or whatever. But no, it, it was never like an un, unrequited love where all of a sudden I'm single and she's single and wow, let's put this back together. Not really. You know, I didn't really have girlfriends. You know, Nancy was the first time we I was really serious with someone. I was so busy rocking and rolling and drinking and smoking pot and being plenty screwed up and just partying and trying to avoid growing up. You know, I, I got my first paycheck from the Howard Stern show when I was like 38. You know what I mean? Like I had a, I led, 
not too charming a life, you know, pretty crazy. It wasn't like, well, I had a girlfriend and we lived together, you know, I mean, I lived together with a girl in, in college uh, for two, right after college for two years, just long enough to make me realize that, wow, I am not ready for this, you know, and I'm still in touch with her. You know, she lives up in Provincetown and, you know, God, you know, and I, I just, to this day, if I see an old letter from her and I see her handwriting, I get warm. And I know that sound, you know, I don't like no, to talk about doesn't. this because it, make, it makes me truth. sound like I'm so full of no, crap. No, you know? no, no, it doesn't. One of the problems with people is I said, you know, you see this all the time with celebrities. Oh, I got divorced. I'm over it. It takes forever to get over it. But, but, but who wants to be, unless somebody has hurt you and done crappy things to you. And it's amazing how you can usually write that off or, you know, you can remember your life the way you choose. You can remember an incident and told by one of my friends it was one way and told by another of my friends the other way. You know, I remember at night in Lake George when the engine conked out on the boat and we had to paddle with the, with the water skis and it was dark and we couldn't see anything. And it was, it was two hours of absolute hell. And I remember saying, I can't believe then a month from now, we're going to be talking about what a great time this was. And I'm telling you, it was a great time. <laughs> and it's hilarious. Well, it wasn't. It was horrible. <laughs> you know. And you know. How many times do you hear a song on the radio and you go, oh, man, remember this one? And I'm like, wait a minute. I hated that fucking song. You know, it's. Well, there's one song tricks, I still you know? can't listen to, which is Bobby Goldsboro, Honey. That's I hated it then. I hate it now. That guy. I, he, he, something happened with him on the Tonight Show that, you know what, it's got to be, it's got to be on YouTube by now. You know, anything you talk about, sometimes you go looking for it and you can't find it, but six months later you can. Right. Or two, you know, I got a very good friend. Were you a fan of the Stern Show? Yes. But so you know, I'll be you, honest. You know, you eventually came, I've been living on the West Coast, and eventually when you came to the West Coast, it was early morning. I'm a late riser. At the time, I was uh, waking well, up at noon. the reason I'm asking is, do you remember a thing called the jetty? Actually, I don't. That they used, they used to break my balls about what was the float that uh, that was outside my house here in Bayville, and, uh, and it was very, very famous on the show, you know, uh, because Howard broke my balls about it, but people came over my house and we'd get drunk and eat lobsters and swim out to the jetty. And it was great fun. And, uh, but it was built by Bruce Springsteen's first manager. And from the balloon farm, when I said that, when I said that, uh, on the show, Gary said, who was it? When I told him who it was, he says, Oh no, you had your mind. It was a guy named Mike Appel. And at the time, Mike Appel was on the internet, which had just started, and that was Bruce Springsteen's first manager. But as time went on, the internet fills in. And it, like back times, it's like, you know, the, the, the Encyclopedia Britannica goes from one leaflet to 25 volumes, and all of a sudden, here's this guy, Carl Tinker West, and he was a good friend of a friend. He was a rocket scientist and a madman. He's still a dear friend. He's like 88 years old. And he, he built the float. But here I am saying, you know, it was built by Bruce Springsteen's first manager. And they're saying, you're crazy. And it turned out that I wasn't crazy at all. But it took time to fill in. But, but this thing with Goldsboro, 
He was on the Tonight Show, and Bill Cosby was hosting, and Richard Pryor was on first, and then Bobby Goldsboro came out. I'm sure he sang that song, Honey, because I think that's the only thing he ever sang. But he's a good old boy from like North Carolina or South Carolina. He came and he sat down, and Pryor moved over. So here's Cosby and Bobby Goldsboro and Richard Pryor. And he, somehow he's talking about, yeah, I'm from North Carolina and what it's like. And then he says, you know, sometimes uh, it could be really scary there because whenever there was a fire up in the woods, all the coons would come running down from the woods. And they were, and he said the word coons and realized he's a Southern guy. And he realized <laughs> he was sitting between two black guys and he started giggling. And it was so fucking uncomfortable and richard pryor looked over at bill cosby and said well are you gonna kill this guy or am i <laughs> and when they came back from commercial there was no bobby goldsboro and i've been telling the story for 50 years and i still have to to find somebody who saw it or knows about it but i haven't googled it in like 10 years so i'm sure it's in there somewhere because i i couldn't make that story up it was it was and he wasn't doing it he wasn't doing it to be racist what was racist was after he said it he heard it and he made that connection. It was it was very odd. Very, very fucking odd. But that 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 is a tough song. That is a tough but I'm sure if I heard it, I go, Oh, I remember this one. Okay, <laughs> well, let's go back. You're talking about the Bruce Springsteen's first manager. Are you ever wrong? Um sometimes sometimes, you know, it's it's funny. Sometimes it can be a detail that you absolutely remember. And you're absolutely wrong, but not about a whole event, but like about this thing or that thing. You know, it's like uh, there was a show called Andy's Gang in the early 50s. Yeah, right. And, and I Like your magic flinger, Froggy. Right. And I used to tell people, well, it wasn't, it wasn't Andy's Gang. Before Andy's Gang, it was Uncle Ed's Gang. And I remembered the Uncle Ed's gang so clearly, so clearly. And I'd argue with people. And finally, it came on the web. And I looked. And it wasn't Uncle Ed's gang. It was Smiling Ed's gang. And the minute I saw it, I was like, yeah. But in my mind, I saw Uncle Ed's gang on the TV screen. So that, you know, I mean, that's a very small detail. But it's funny how your mind plays tricks. But when I say to this day, I was like, Andy was the new guy. And people are like, you're out of your mind. No, Andy was the fucking new guy. I hated Andy Devine on Sunday. I love Crusader Rabbit, but they went into Andy Devine. I hated it. Did you uh, like Andy Devine? I, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't watch Crusader Rabbit. I wasn't a big. You know, I. It's so weird what you liked. You know, I. I read Superman. Uh I wasn't a anywhere near as big a Batman fan as Superman, but the rest of them kind of left me cold. I read Aquaman and Superboy, but when they got wacky, I, they, they, you know, the Marvel comics that was not my thing. But here I'm reading Superman and Batman. But I was a huge fan of Archie and Betty and Veronica. You know, and they just had me. They just had me. And I love that. And I never thought in terms of it being weird, but that, that if anybody ever saw my comic book collection, they would say, what planet is this guy from? You know. Okay. But, let, uh, let's go back to being right. We know that there are a lot of dummies and uninformed people in society. What I've learned going to psychotherapy is sometimes I got to let it slide because it ends up reflecting on me. I may be right, but they dislike it. Can you let shit slide or if someone gets it wrong, you got to let them know. 
Well, you know, depending what you're talking about, you know, you get old enough, you don't, you know, you don't care. You know, how much of my life am I going to waste? You know, like, uh, like I did a roast last night and all of a sudden I got the vibe that holy shit, the, you know, a couple of these guys and girls, whatever, they're Trump people. I wasn't going to address it. I just wasn't going to address it. It had nothing to do with the comedy, nothing to do with what we were doing. But, uh, you know, I guess if I, if I had a heart, you know, or had any conviction, I would have jumped in and, and tried to, you know, sway the boat. But no, you know, like at what point, you know, I, I'm, you know what? I'm not a confrontational type guy. I'm really not, which sounds funny because people thought I was so confrontational with Howard on the show, but I, you don't have to be a confrontational type person to not put up with bullying. It's a whole different thing. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, I don't care. I don't care if you're for the Mets or the Yankees, you know, but uh, don't don't tell my my cousin he's an asshole because he likes the Yankees, you know. OK, so now in your eighth decade, what have you learned? Easy, because easy. because I know. But as we get easy. older, as we get older, we learn stuff. Listen, I'm in my seventh decade. I'm just an inch or two behind you. What have you learned? Because as you get older, you do get. You do tend to get happier and you do tend to get wiser. Uh, never waste a hard on, never pass a bathroom, never trust a fart. Those are the three things that people used to always say. And I never understood what they were talking about. And now it's the fucking gospel. <laughs> well, that begs the question. Do you uh, take any medic? Everything begs the question. You need a couple of new phrases. Oh, you're right. That, you're makes, right, me, that makes me want to ask a question. You know what? That that brings something to mind. Begs a question. You sound like a, a, a fucking <laughs> British politician. It okay, I'll just question. jump right into it. There you, you go. Do you take any anti pee medication? No, 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 no. Can you sit through a movie? You, you without- mean you mean you mean uh, to to make it through the night or something? No, you yes. know. I get up and pee plenty, and sometimes I don't. Uh, Usually I, I'm fine uh, with a movie. I'll, I'll sit there and I, I know there's going to be 14 commercials. I mean, 14 coming attractions. And when I know it's getting close, I zoom to the bathroom and take my quick leak and zoom back. You know, I'm, I have no pride about that. I haven't peed in a popcorn box yet, but uh, it's been a long, you know, very rarely where you sit there in agony. Um, but I don't I don't take any of that stuff, you know. Uh, to make you get when I wonder what it had been like the early nineties or something, Nancy and I were, had moved up. So we, our bedroom was in our attic, you know, we finished attic. And all of a sudden I started getting up in the middle of the night to pee. And I said, Holy Christ, my life is over. And I was getting up like twice a night to pee. And I hadn't changed, you know, it didn't change my diet. I didn't have, it was the same getting up in the morning. And I thought I am so screwed. And as quick as it happened, it just stopped and really? it never happened again. And I was like, what kind of God is it that, you know, I, I really thought that it was the end of the world. I thought I was done, you know, and but no, you know, so but now, you know, I get up a bunch of times, you know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes not so much, but I, it's built in. You know, I get up and I have nasty taste in my mouth. So I get up and I brush my teeth and I take a pee and I kick the cat. It's just part of it. You know, instead of. Instead of all crap, I got to get up. It's, oh, 
I get to go back to bed. And I spent a lot of years where I didn't get to go back to bed. To this day, it's 20 years later. I'm still like, look at that fucking pillow just waiting for me. Fuck everybody. Look at this. You know, you know, but when somebody says, do you regret leaving the Stern show? I don't look at my bank book. I look at my pillow and go, you know what? You know, okay. it, it was uh, it was a it was a toss up. You know what so I mean? So what what time do you get up now? Whenever I fucking well fit. You know, sometimes seven, sometimes eight. In the summer, in the summer, I'm usually, you know, up at seven and go for a really nice, nice long swim. And then come back and climb in bed with my girlfriend and we have tea and, you know, watch the TV and then have breakfast, you know. But otherwise, it's, uh, you know, it, it's 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 more about when she wakes up. If she, you know, she wakes up, she brings us up a couple cups of tea, you know, one or two. And, uh, but there's not, there's no pressure, you know, never any pressure, you know, once in a blue moon. You know, I haven't done it in a while. I haven't even been in my city apartment since the COVID. But uh, it's so funny because once in a while I would do a Q104 with Jim Kerr, the morning show all the way down in the AT&T building. And, you know, I'd be on with him at like 645. So I'd have to get up at six or quarter to six. And just getting up one day at quarter to six, I'd be like, holy fuck. And Forget quarter to six. I had to be in my chair in Manhattan at six o'clock living here in Bayville. You know, I got up at 20, 20 after four. Or, you know, it's so funny. I got up at 420 for <laughs> 15 years. And all of a sudden the other day, somebody goes, yeah, I can't believe you used to get up at 420. I never made the connection of 420 before. And I was like, gee, and they thought I was kidding. They said, oh, you're full of shit. I said, no, no, I never thought about it before, you know. How'd you meet your girlfriend that you have now? Um, it's so weird because we worked in parallel, but she was a singer on Long Island in different bands for 30 years or something. And then she started working with Omnipop, which is a booking agent, a talent agency on the South Shore of Long Island. So we've been in the same industry forever. And <clears throat> I was uh, headlining at a club here on Long Island called The Brokerage. And Omnipop has a division that's in California. And they have this act who's coming on strong. She's kicking ass like crazy. So this is like five or six years ago. But her name was is Erica Rhodes. And her uh, her aunt is married to Garrison Keeley. I'm sure you know that name. Right, right. Gar and um, so she was opening up for me. And she was coming in from California. So somebody from Omnipop had to pick her up at the train station. And bring her to the show. And Barbara brought her to the show and said, for whatever reason, said, you know, so I'll go in, you know. And it was, it, it, it's just, you know, you look back and say it's so weird, but it's not weird because if it hadn't happened, you wouldn't be asking me this question. But, you know, there's nobody in the bar because the showroom is packed and I'm standing at the bar. And uh, no, she was standing at the bar and I came walking in the bar and here's this very pretty blonde standing at the bar. And I walked up and said, who are you? And she said, I'm Barbara. And I said, wow, you know, you married? Yeah, at the time I'm single, you know, I wasn't dating anybody or anything, you know, nothing serious going on. And I said, are you, you know, I'm a forward jerk, you know, the same old guy. I said, are you married? She said, no. I said, you got a boyfriend? She said, no. I said, well, then we got to take a picture. And we took a picture. And I said, now you got to give me your email address so I can send you the picture. 
or your or your cell phone or whatever. Right. And then I spent uh, I sent her the picture and spent the next month or so trying to talk her into going on a date with me, because as you know, as my reputation filled in behind me. And then <clears throat> by too long a story to explain, I wound up with four of the best seats in the house to a Willie Nelson concert way up in Simsbury, Connecticut. And I said, do you want to go to see Willie Nelson in Connecticut? It was like a three-hour drive. So she took a chance and we drove to see Willie. And by the time we got back, uh, you closed a relationship, her. you know, and she's, and she's great. She's, you know, she's, you know, she's the exact opposite of me. And she's so gentle and so neat and so clean. And, uh, but she's great. She, you know, and then, <clears throat> you know, she's kept me alive. Okay. Are you always so forward in every walk of life? You have any social anxiety or no matter who's there, you don't get uptight. You'll say what you need to. You know, I would love to say, yes, I don't, but I'm, oh, I'm completely uptight, completely uptight. But I, I just push past it, you know, and, and I love it. You know, I, I spent, you know, eight years at the Cannes Film Festival and Sundance and Toronto. And, you know, I, I, I'll walk up to anybody. I don't care. And, and I, and I expect the same. I expect people to feel free to walk up to me. And they usually do that because they, they say, you just seem approachable. And, and I am, you know, I mean, I, certainly approachable now i'm just a little old man but when there was a time when i wasn't really famous but i was known you know and uh it, people could tell you know it's it's like with a horse the odds the odd thing being that uh i'm not petrified of horses but i don't i can't believe that something that big is that trust you can trust it that much but um you know i think anytime i've been a, a little terrified of walking up to a girl i've I've done it, you know, just uh, whatever. I'm not saying I didn't get shut down a zillion times, but, you know, well, you know, you really have nothing to lose. You know, you, it's easy to say that. And then, you know, there must have been a million times where I just slinked away. I just don't choose to remember that, you know. Okay. So what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you the life of the party? Were you an outsider? <clears throat> I I was raised by wolves. Uh, but not really. We were like the Waltons until, say, seventh grade, and then my father was drinking way too much. Wait, wait. Let's go back. Um, what did you? What did your father and mother do for a living? Uh, my mother was brilliant, uh, but she dropped out of uh, the workforce to get married in 1947, and um, you know she got knocked up. She, my parents got married on July 4th, and I was born on Valentine's Day. You know, do the math. My father was a good-looking guy, came out of the service, and uh, he didn't get married. He was 35. She was 27. And um, my grandfather built the house I live in, and <clears throat> my father and mother lived downstairs, and my father's brother married my mother's sister, and they lived upstairs, like the Nortons and the Cramdons. And I was the first kid out of the two brothers and two sisters. So for the first two years of my life, I had four doting parents and then my mother had another kid my aunt had a kid they moved out i went from four parents to none and i spent the last 70 years going where the fuck did everybody go all right my mother was very smart very witty uh unbelievably so which i did you don't know when you're a kid because does a fish know it's in water you know and my father had a very political job. My great uncle was the chairman of the National Republican uh, National Republican Party 
He was Eisenhower's campaign manager, and he, he coined the phrase, I like Ike. So everybody in the family had a Republican job. In the 50s, Nassau County on, Nass- on Long Island was like the 49th state. So we always went to the ball games, to the World Series, to the, you know, and uh, we had a great, great, great life. And then my father started drinking too much. And I was, I was fun. You know, people used to say, were you the class? You know, when we first started getting famous on the Stern Show, people would ask, but just what you said. And people would say, were you the class clown? And I wouldn't just say yes, because in my twisted mind, that would be like giving myself a coronation that who am I to coronate myself as the class clown? And then I was like, wait a minute. The cover of my first comedy album is my eighth grade class picture. And I'm giving the finger. And I said, wait a minute, maybe by default, I was the class clown. And I absolutely was the class clown. I was just, you know, always, always a ball breaker. And then started playing the guitar in high school, you know, like every other guy, to meet chicks and to have fun. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways, shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. So you're in school, good student? Yeah, I was I was very, very smart. Um my eighth grade math teacher, my eighth grade homeroom teacher, my math teacher, it's a very small school, and I lived down the street. She, we had a, uh, an uh, excelled, uh, excelled math class preparing people for college, but you had to come in at 7.30, a half hour before school started, and she would call my house to get me roused up so I would come in. Wow. And come to, co- and uh, I did really great, but I mean, I almost didn't graduate because I, you know, I got so drunk for all senior high school. You know, I, I got accepted to Michigan State in December. 
they they pass you right away at those big schools. So I spent the next six months drunk and missed so much school. But I was, yeah, I was smart. And I went to, I graduated from Michigan State University in 1971 as a mechanical engineer. Yeah, that's my question. Why, you know, A, mechanical engineering is not a, uh, a easy course of study. It B, was so hard. My father had been an engineer in Alabama for a couple of years that he went to school. I just innately knew if I didn't take a really difficult major, that I would just get drunk and flunk out of college. Somehow in all my craziness and all my fog, I knew that. So here I'm taking this hard, I mean, my roommates, you know, taking two hours of Shakespeare and getting four credits and I'm spending eight hours in a chemistry lab for four hours, I mean, four times a week to get the same four credits. You know, it was really, really difficult. You know, but I'm taking atomic physics and mechanics and it's the late 60s, so I'm going to college with bare feet, with my dog, with a ponytail, and the other guys are cheating off my paper. You know, it was like pretty storybook. You know, it was great. And I tuned and I turned on. I dropped out. I missed it. I, I dropped out a term. I failed enough classes to miss a term. And I missed another term because I uh, I screwed up my knee. So I was missing an entire year of school. And then I met Darlene and we fell in love and I had nothing, be nothing better to do. So I went back to school and finished. Okay, did you have any intention of being an engineer? No intention of doing anything. All I knew was I wasn't going to get a job. You know, the people I was graduating with were like, well, I'm starting at Ford for $25,000 and they give me a house. Oh, I'm starting with GM and they, they give me a, a car. And I didn't even I didn't even take one interview. I, I, are you kidding me? Neither you know, did and I. And I stayed, I stayed in East Lansing, Michigan another two years. I was there for seven years in the bubble. The bubble that was the college town of East Lansing, Michigan in the late 60s. I mean, talk about dying and going to heaven. It just was, it was beyond spectacular. Okay, but you you're know. going to college in the late 60s and your family is Republican. And based on your earlier comments, you're anti-Trump or whatever. At what point, the Vietnam War, What? how do you turn well, you left? Know, yeah, Vietnam. And, you know, of course, you know, my father, you know, my father was a local politician. Oh, my brother took a Nixon bumper sticker and put it on my parents' car upside down. So it said Noxon. And, oh, my father blew a gasket. You know, like, I mean, it was, a, but there was, it was all, it was all, everybody in politics is just on the take, on the take, on the take. My father said, listen, Jackie, you know, yeah, Nixon's an asshole, but Nixon didn't do anything any different than any other politician has ever done. He just was stupid enough to get caught. And that has rung in my head for a long time because my father wasn't a dishonest guy. He was a, he was a stand up great guy. You know, um, I'm not I'm not really a political guy. I just know I hate Trump because I I don't you know I I hated him when he used to come on the Stern Show. He's one of those people that would come in the room and he didn't know there was anybody else in the room. And I I don't put up for that. You know, I don't give a fuck who you are. You okay, know, so but were you anti-war? Did you protest the Vietnam oh, War? Oh, yeah, of course. You know, I had a ponytail, and you know, I actually uh, <laughs> there was a day I woke up and I had dropped out of school, and the guy, the and the social science professor didn't know I had dropped out of school, and we used to have uh, student, uh, not student, student assistance, and what we did was. Michigan State was so big that somebody would give a lecture, but there would be uh, uh, satellite 
satellites of that lecture in different halls around the campus. And the student assistants would go into the room and plug in the TV and turn it on. And it'd be the professor who was giving the lecture somewhere else on campus. And all the kids would be sitting there. And at the end of the lecture, he'd turn off the TV and lead the discussions. So I was a student assistant, but then I dropped out of school, but I was still doing it. <laughs> and then when all of a sudden this shit hit the fan, everything was crazy. I actually walked in and wrote on the blackboard, please do not come to class. Please stay home. You know, and of course, they had, they, the professor called me up and said, Jackie, I got to fire you. You can't do that. You know, and, uh, and then. So you like, wanted them to stay home to protest. Yeah. So that afternoon, me and my friend Russ go to see the movie Woodstock. And we come out of Woodstock like crazed hippies. And I go buy a six pack. And the professor that had fired me that morning was having a barbecue for all the student assistants. And he was saying, Jackie, I can't even fire you because you're not in. I want to fire you, but you're not in the in the pay, pay thing because you're not registered. Because you dropped out. So he couldn't stop my paycheck because I couldn't have got one. He was having a barbecue that night out in the outskirts of East Lansing. I bought a six-pack. I hitchhiked to the middle of nowhere. I'm walking along. I got a ponytail holding a six-pack. I'm drinking a beer. And an off-duty cop pulls over and comes up and says, you can't walk along drinking a beer. Made me walk back to the gas station called the cops, made me pour out the beers. They're threatening me like they're going to cut my hair and kick my ass. This is Michigan in 1968 or something, 69. And the cops show up, and I have an outstanding muffler ticket from Ann Arbor from two years before. And I go to jail. And I called the professor <laughs> who had fired me that morning at he left his own barbecue and came 10 or 20 miles to bail me out of jail and brought me back to the party. And, of course, I walked into the party. I was a big hero, and I ran the whole story of going to jail, just like Arlo Guthrie in Alice's Restaurant, and I fucked the best-looking student assistant. It was like one of those days that you lived your whole life in one day. You know what I mean? I got up. I got fired. I went to Woodstock. I got arrested. I went home. Oh, oh, and that's not even, oh, geez, I'm, I'm, it always sounds like I'm making up as I go along. I'm banging this girl, and they call me. They had taken the doors down at the dormitory at Snyder Phillips Hall in Michigan State. One side was the boys. One side was the girls. And underneath in the middle was the rec room. And they had taken the doors off. So And the boys were moving in with the girls, and the girls were moving in with the boys, and my band was playing in the, in the, in the hall in the middle. So I had to stop banging this girl and go, to, and go play with my band. And we played like, I'm, I don't know if you all know, there was a song called Volunteers of America. Of course I the know Jefferson that song. Air, Jefferson Airplane, come on. The Jefferson Airplane, we played it for two hours. I mean, it was just... Da, 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 I, I mean, I lived a life, you know, I should have been dead five times. You know, I, I, you know, high school was crazy. College was crazy. Okay. Graduate from college. Cool. You're in Lee Lansing for another two years. What are you doing? Uh, my girlfriend and I broke up and, you know, I, I told her she had to leave. You got to leave. You got to leave. And once she left, uh, I was destroyed and, uh, I had lived with a couple of 
guys that like drunks and heroin addicts and they, you know, they lived, they moved into my house, but I had some great friends. We, we had a good time. And finally a friend, an old friend came from New York and well, a couple of guys came from New York to live with me for a while. And, uh, and then another old friend came from New York. He said, look, I'm getting you out of here. And he said, look, we'll go to Denver and we'll say hello. And, uh, and then we'll go to Amsterdam and buy some hash and make some money. I said, all right, sounds good. <clears throat> he came to pick me up in East Lansing. He stayed three months. <laughs> I hadn't had a car for years. So all of a sudden he's got a car. So we're stealing steaks, living like kings, having the time of a fucking lifetime. Finally, my kid brother comes out. He's nine years old. We put him and my dog and the two of us and everything we own in this tiny Volvo sports car and drove to Denver. And we stayed in Denver for six months. That, that's a whole eight guys from the hometown of Oyster Bay, Long Island, living in the same condo, working construction. It was it, I, it always sounds like I'm making it up as I go along. And then my old friend that I played music with in high school and during summers in college came through and he said, Jackie, what are you doing? I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm working construction. I can't even play my guitar because my hands are all callous. He said, well, let's go back to New York and start a band. I said, I'll tell you what, I'm writing songs and I want to be funny. If we could tell jokes and play original songs, I'm in. He said, let's do it. We came back and the entire 70s, me and this guy had a band called the Off Hour Rockers, H-O-U-R, and we drove around in the 70s in a 1955 bright yellow Cadillac hearse. And we always had girls, we always had booze, we always had pot. And we had so much fun, and uh, but we never got anywhere. Did and you try band, to? Did you try to get somewhere? I wrote so many songs, and my heart was so in it. And when it comes to art, how much your heart is in it, and how successful you are at it, and how much money you make at, and how famous you get, is not necessarily in any way correlated to how deeply invested in it you were. I mean, I, I ground out these songs. I wasn't looking for Moon, June, Spoon. These songs were coming out of my, I don't know whether I, you know, when you talk about being an artist, the minute you say that word, you feel like you're full of shit. It's like to this day, if I tell somebody I'm a comedian, I'm still waiting for somebody to tap me on the shoulder and say, no, you're not. <laughs> you know, I mean, that whole insecurity comes with it. But uh, we never got anywhere. And we were so much fun. We told jokes. We did routines. We played original songs, but there is no video of that band. And we broke up in 1978. And a year later, everybody had VCRs and video cameras. And it, it's just beyond the pale. But the band broke up and I had been telling jokes and telling jokes and uh, playing gigs by myself with my guitar and my jokes. And then I met some comedians and they would come to my gigs and get up on stage because uh, there was no place to to have stage time and like Eddie Murphy and Bob Nelson and Rob Bartlett, Richie Minervini, they, Bob Woods, Dave Horton, my old friends to this day, they would just show up and I put them on stage and, you know, and we'd be horrible. And then I started booking shows around. Okay. This was still when you were singing songs. I, I was, I was singing songs, but it was a comedy act. It was, a, it was, it was my original songs, but I told jokes. And when I started doing comedy, <clears throat> like 
I called my official start date, January 1979, and I went from being a uh, a guy who sang songs and told jokes to being a guy who told jokes and sang songs. Now you're no, you're known. That sounds it's it's subtle, but you know, for the whole whole first year as a comedian, I always had on my guitar. Oh, okay. and I had a ponytail for the but first But you're known month. for telling jokes in a rapid fire way. What was your act back then? Just a couple jokes. You know, I'd tell a couple jokes and it wasn't really, I never even thought in terms of, of uh, an act. You know, do you, I'd play do you a remember song. The jo- do you remember the jokes you told then? Yeah, I told them last night. It's the same shit. You know, I, I found, I, I got everything here in my, you wouldn't believe my, my, uh, my garage here. And I got everything that I ever recorded. And I found out that some of these old VHS tapes are okay. And my friend Ed took a 1986 Mr. Rips in Valley Cottage. And he, and he saved it onto an MP4 and he sent it to me and I'm watching it. And it's the same jokes. And I'm sitting there laughing at myself, laughing at myself. And I knew those jokes were already old. I, the jokes I tell, I heard in 1958, you know, they're just funny. They're just timeless, you know, and. What was really funny, the reason I know more jokes than anybody in the world is I always absorbed them. They always stuck to me. And I don't know why, but they just did. But then when we had the band in the 70s, we used to tell jokes and play songs. And we played in the same two, three, four clubs week after week after week. Now, nobody ever took the time to tell us that a comedian has an act and he does it to a different audience every night. We were playing to the same audience every week. So we're scrounging around doing everything we could to find new jokes and new ideas because we had to play to the same people week after week after week. And so I just accumulated this ridiculous, but I already knew the jokes. It's, it's hard to explain. You know, if you're a joke teller, people cannot wait to tell you a joke. I know that's ridiculous. They're so sure they have a joke you haven't heard. Now, of course, <laughs> the jokes that somebody's going to tell me is, co- of course, going to be something that I know because it's popular and it's going around. As early as like 1975, we'd be on break and somebody come up and say, all right, I got a joke for you. And I'd say, all right, I'm going to count down from 10. And when I get to zero, if I haven't told you the punchline, I'll buy you a drink. 1975. I never bought anybody a drink. I got so, if somebody's talking about the Indian and the cowboy going down the, the river on a canoe, I'd say, you know what? This is the priest and the nun going across the desert. I, I just could see the parallels, figure out jokes. It, it, they just they just stuck with me. I can't really explain it. But they And then when my band broke up, what did I have? All I knew was, all I knew was I had a zillion jokes, a lot of original songs, and the desire to never, ever get a regular job. I was never going to become a commuter. And then I wound up in the Stern Show. And the people that got up to commute laughed at me. Because I was Literally. So getting up, okay. Getting, getting up so early. You know, How like, important is the telling of a joke as opposed to the lines of the joke? Uh, about 110%. So what, what are the keys to telling a good joke? Uh, it's actually very simple. You, you pare them down. Uh, I remember even very, very early on, I'd get so angry because like the playboy jokes, you know, and the, on the playboy, you know, the open playboy, uh, the, the handsome, gorgeous, voluptuous, young, blonde, sauntered 
into the bar and found herself at the bar stool and looked over at the bartender and said, no, a girl goes into a bar. Stage is set. That's all you need. A fat girl goes into a bar. Stage is set. You chop everything away. And you also tell things it's got to be in the present. And that sounds, once again, that's subtle. You know, a girl went into the bar and said, it's already history. A girl goes into a bar. A guy walks into a bar. Now it, it's real time. It's present. It's now. I know it sounds stupid. And the main thing, yeah, I've, I've written lots of articles for people. Yeah, I mean, for magazines and stuff. Also is you make sure that you know the punchline absolutely cold because you can stumble through a whole damn joke and fudge and screw around. And as long as you hit the punchline just right, it, that makes up for a real lot. You know, if you, you stumble over a punchline, get a word wrong, you know, you're lost. And meanwhile, none of this means anything to anybody. Nobody cares about telling jokes, but you know, I You'd was, be surprised I so how many people, people are telling jokes all over the universe today. Oh no, no, I know that, but they don't care about getting it right. I spent, I spent so many countless, countless hours at bars, parties, getting stoned, getting drunk, doing acid. I would be, I would listened to every joke that everybody ever told me. And as the years went on, it became more and more and more rare that somebody tell me something I hadn't heard. But I, I still get so excited when I hear a joke I haven't heard before. And sometimes they're really obvious jokes that just slip through the cracks. My favorite, my favorite example. Uh, do you know who Mark Hudson is? The Hudson of brothers? Of course, I, I know Mark Hudson. Oh, he's a good pal. So, so Mark Hudson, um, that was doing a show at Iridium at 50, 51st and Broadway, uh, downstairs. And, uh, it was called, uh, Thursdays on the Hudson. And he, he would, you know, Billy J. Kramer, people like that, you know, people that, who's that? What was that? You know, people of note from notes past. <clears throat> and they were always great shows. And Mark's so talented, so funny. But if, you know, if I, I never could just go to these things. So if I go to see somebody, it's, they always ask me up on stage and I'm always, oh, fuck, I got to go on stage. And meanwhile, then if they don't ask me, I'm like, why didn't they ask me? You know, <laughs> every performer is the same. But I went up and uh, it, the place is packed. It, where and when it was doesn't matter, but I just like it just it, it makes it more interesting to me. So the show's done and we go in the back. We're hanging out in the green room for like a half hour and we come back out. And the place is still packed because the people want to say hello to Mark and say hello to Billy and say hello to Jackie, whatever. And it's still crammed. And a guy comes up to me and he says, Jackie, I've been a fan for 40 years and I know you know every joke in the world, but I got to try one on you. And I didn't do those, but I said, listen, of course, you know, I listen, I listen to everybody's jokes. This guy told me a joke that's too dirty for my act. I tell I have a very, very filthy, fast act, <laughs> but it was too, it's too dirty for my act because it slows people up. Because if people go, ooh, or they get the least bit thrown, just like Jesus, I could care less about Jesus, but I don't do much Jesus jokes because if somebody goes, oh, am I going to get hit by lightning? I've lost them for the next joke or the next phrase. You know, I don't want to do anything to slow up put up any hurdles, right? So this guy told me a joke that 
is one of my favorite jokes of all time, but I can't use it in my act because it slows down what's going on because it's so disgusting. Are you going to tell it? That said, it's a joke you could tell on terrestrial radio. And it's a joke you could tell to a five-year-old kid. It's not the aristocrats. Think about the scenario. Please. The scenario I just created. It's too disgusting for my act. But you could tell it to a kid. And you could tell it on terrestrial radio. If you tell it to a kid, will the kid laugh? He'll die. A girl calls the doctor and she says, Doc, I have diarrhea. Can I take a bath? And he says, if you have enough. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just so disgusting, (laughs) but it's just so funny. It's so perfect. And I fell down. He said, Jackie, you don't have to pretend. I said, I'm not pretending. It's the funniest fucking thing. My God, it's beautiful. Oh, I love it. That's just so funny. You know, I do, I do cameo.com. Do you know what that is? Yes, of course. I, I, I do those cameo.coms. I do, you know, I did like three today. You know, I, I love doing them. And I could have done 14. I could have done 14 while I was waiting to do this. Uh, how, much, how, much do you, how much do you charge? I only charge 50 bucks. Okay. Because I, I, I'll tell you, I don't, I, I don't get to perform. I haven't had a show since March. This is, they're like my methadone. You know what I mean? I tell three, four, five, six jokes on, on each of these things and have fun and laugh. It, it, it gets me through the night. You know what I mean? I really enjoy doing them. And uh, that that diarrhea joke is always in there. It's always in there. And a lot of times I start with it because it's really fun, you know. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com 
So you put out your first comedy record in August of 79. Uh, what happened was I had worked in a recording studio uh, after they liked a, a song that uh, we had a crazy song called the pot song that Howard always played on the radio and my band recorded it. And the guys that own the recording studio asked me to work there. And I did and learned enough about recording to know that any idiot can have an album. And then I told my girlfriend, they're laughing at all my jokes. I borrowed a hundred bucks from 15 different people and made my first comedy record. The cover is my eighth grade class picture where I'm given the finger. And, um, it was recorded at upstairs at a restaurant, with two microphones hanging and a Nakamichi cassette player with me on one side and the crowd mic on the other. And uh, then I made another album and then I made another whoa, album. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This was back in the days before the in internet. Independent distribution was difficult. How did you get the record no, into there stores? Was How no, did you sell there it? was no distribution. I sold them at gigs. I sent them to everybody. It was more of a promotion than anything. You know, nobody was selling anything. I was the first guy by a decade to do that. And when I first got, I'll tell you, when I went to pick up my first thousand albums at Port Authority, it was like I was picking up quintuplets. I mean, I was, I can still remember the aurora around my head. I was like, my God. And there's even so much more to it that I will not bore you with that's really crazy. And I'll never forget, I worked at Pips in Brooklyn, and I must have been so excited that I promoted the hell out of it. And I think I was making 40 bucks for the night, and I sold 15 albums at five bucks a piece, which was an extra 75 bucks, which in 1979 right. for a low echelon comic. And then I would sell them after my gigs, and the other guys used to make fun of me. Oh, there goes Jackie with his albums. Oh, buy one of Jackie's albums. And then one day somebody said, wait a minute. We all made $30 and he made an extra $80. Maybe he knows what he's doing. You know, like all of a sudden they realize maybe I'm not an idiot because I'm signing autographs and warming up to people and having a great time. And then I wound up making a second album and a third album. And all along the way, I sent them to everybody. Like if I, if I ran into you, I would say, what's your name? Uh, what do you do? Oh, you're in the music industry. Let me send you my comedy album. So I would, I would hand them the albums to everybody. I was so proud of it. And by this time, I actually had been in contact with Rodney Dangerfield. So I asked them to send me $5. I still have my $5 check from Rodney buying my well, album. A little bit slower. How did you make connection with Rodney? Well, that's, a, that, that's way off topic. That's, but it's basically the same thing. It's me reaching out to people. I've always reached out to people. Um, We'll come back to Rodney. But what happened was I put put out an album, put out another album. And each time I put out an album and sent it to everybody and put out another album and sent it to everybody and put out another album. So by 1982, Nancy, who was going to become my wife, was working with me. And we must have sent out copies of all three albums with the matching cassettes and all the promo to so many. I mean, hundreds of people. And the albums were expensive and the cassettes were expensive and the postage was expensive. And we, and we were, I was hosting at Governor's Comedy Shop, the, this club that we started with these guys. And I mean, we were putting everything back in and we had no idea what we we're doing. We didn't have any game plan. We didn't have any, any, you know, carrot at the end of the stick. We we're just, just working. You know, she thought I was funny and she thought, 
We thought something could happen. We liked our music. <clears throat> and then I found out from a guy in, in Washington that this guy just got fired and that he was moving to NBC and I should send my records to him. And I had no idea who Howard Stern was. I just put my records in a, in a, you know, mailer and we just mailed the records. And a couple of months later, Nancy called up and said, Hey, that disc jockey from WNBC wants you to call him. So I called him and he said, you want to come in and help judge a talent contest over the telephone? And I said, well, sure. I'm sitting in my mother's attic. <laughs> Not, nothing to lose. That's where my first joke land was. And I went in and sat there and it was Howard and Fred and Robin. And I sat down and we laughed for four hours. And when we got done, he said, man, you are a lot of fun. Why don't you come back next week? So I came back next week, once a week for free for three years. So I was, I, I, that's pretty immediate acceptance. You know what I mean? Okay. Were you bothered by the fact that you weren't getting paid for that three years? Not the slightest amount. Okay. Cause I know compensation, although with NBC or was uh, an issue further down the line. So how did it turn into a full-time gig? They asked me to come back and, uh, I, I inherently knew how incredibly valuable that was. I mean, for a 50,000 watt st uh, station in the tri-state area, with him to be saying, see Jackie Martling at Governor's Comedy Shop every Friday and Saturday, I knew how valuable that was. And you wouldn't believe comics still come up to me and say, I can't believe you asked me to come on the Howard Stern show. And I said, no, because I would say to somebody, hey, you want to come join me on the Howard Stern show on Tuesday? And they would say, what's it pay? I said, what do you mean? What's it pay? It's the flagship station of WNBC AM. Are you out of your mind? And then I parlayed it. I told the guys at Rascals Comedy Club, look, let me do a show on Tuesday nights. I'll host open mic and I'll advertise it. And then you could pay me because it's worth it for me to advertise you on the radio. And what happened was very, very, very gradually, I gave him ideas like uh, when I first gave him some some ideas for one of his bits, he kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? I don't need help. And then I heard him doing them on the radio. And then like the next week, it was like, you know, what else you got? You know, and slowly but surely, I was just giving him little pieces of snippets of paper and ideas. It was so gradual and so organic. And then he got fired. Uh from WNBC and he got rehired at K-Rock. And after like a couple of weeks, he called up and said, Hey, we want you to join us again once a week. It was the afternoons. And when I went in, there was actually a place for me to sit and write. And I physically would put the notes on half of a, a, an open loose leaf and just physically put them in front of him. And it had, it had migrated to where I was. I had an actual stack of paper. At one point in NBC, I just said, this is bullshit. I just got a stack of paper and a Sharpie and started writing it nice and big so he could see it. And then once I was set up the way I was at K-Rock, Fred would give me little ideas on a piece of paper. And one day I gave him a big stack of paper. I said, look, here's the paper and here's the Sharpie. You hand me a little snippet of paper. By the time I rewrite it and put it up for Howard, the moment's lost. We're already going 100,000 miles an hour. So he started doing that, and then they decided to put him on in mornings. And all the millions of dollars and all the millions and millions of listeners and 55 stations and number one on lots of them, my entire job description was 
He called up and said, listen, we're starting mornings. I need you to come in two days a week and do your thing with the notes. That was my total job description. Do your thing with the notes. And I went in and the two days I was there, he was much funnier. So all of a sudden I was on three days and then four days and then five days because it was a glaring difference. So Jackie, when you started to give Howard those notes prior to that point, no one was performing your role. No one was giving him any help. As far as we know, nobody had ever, ever done that. Like in the old days of radio, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, if those guys were doing a radio show, they would go to commercial and the writers would come over with ideas and they try and top each other. But I actually, I, you know, I coined it. I, one day I was getting interviewed and I said, yeah, it's flying gag writing. And everybody made fun of me, but that is totally descriptive to describe what it is. I mean, obviously, I've answered these questions a million times. If me and you and your wife were sitting there having lunch and we're all kind of funny and kind of all kind of interesting and we're having a conversation, I say something, you say something, maybe she says something funny, uh, you say something funny, uh, I say something funny, and this is a, a fun conversation. Now, picture that same conversation. I'm a kind of funny guy. Whenever I think of something funny to say, instead of saying it, I write it down and put it in front of you. Now, obviously, you got to be pretty smart and pretty quick on your feet to work it in to whatever you're talking about, even though, you know, it's right along the line. But Howard was brilliant. He would just look at whatever I wrote and absorb it. He would very often just read it with hardly a pre-read. He just trusted me so much. And uh, it was seamless. And then Fred, give me, give me an idea. Give me an idea of a couple of ideas you might give him at that point in time. You know, I, I can't even give you just like a, a punchline for something like, uh, it's, it's too hard to give an example out of context. However, I do have every note that I ever wrote that he ever said in my mother's attic. And there are countless thousands of them. I'd be glad to whip them out. Okay. So you say you have everything. Are you generally speaking a hoarder, a pack rat? No, not even a little bit. But when I started doing it, I said, this is going to be no evidence of anything I've ever done. <clears throat> you know what I've got? At some point, um, I, I used to pull so much stuff. You know, I, I, I'm fun, you know, and I, I, I didn't mind that he was the big star. I didn't care. I didn't want it to be a Jackie Martling show. I didn't have any, I didn't want to ever carry the ball. I just... But I like to fuck around. I'm the guy that likes to break balls. <clears throat> and people would come on, and Howard was was very rude. Like a celebrity would come on and sit right next to me, and Howard talked to him. But Howard wasn't the kind of guy that would say, this is Jackie, that's Fred. How you doing? He just, what? that's not in his wheelhouse. He's, he's, it's not that he's a bad guy. He's just not, that's, that's not him. So I would get the address of the manager or the home address or whatever from celebrities. And I would send them my, either my albums or my cassettes. And later on, my once 93, I guess it hit, I would send them CDs of my jokes and stuff. And the musicians or the performers, whoever came in, of course, love filthy jokes and they would listen to them and love them. And the next time they came on the show, they would forget that they had never met me, <laughs> which was great. Like Diamond David Lee Roth and, and Branford Marsalis and, uh, uh, Roger Daltrey, Clarence Clemens. They come in and say, 
hey, Jackie, how you doing? <laughs> it was like, it, it was so funny. And they tell, oh, Howard, Jackie's albums are the funniest thing in the world. And he would, you know, the steam would come out of his ears, you know. But at some point, I said to Steve Grillo, listen, I would take the funniest note that I had written about somebody and hand it to Grillo, Steve, and say, hey, get them to sign it and and maybe say something silly, okay? Like one of them, I, I, I'll send you these. I got, I, I got about 120 of them. And you could not sit down and write this eclectic group. You could not write this random a group at gunpoint. You know, John Wayne Bobbitt, Al Michaels, um, Tiny Tim, David Lee Roth, Branford Marsalis, um, uh, Geraldo Rivera, just names that, you know, Barbara, Barbara uh, Streisand's sister, you know, Adam West. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't concoct this list of people who signed, right? And like Geraldo, uh, he came in to, to announce that he just got his own show on CNBC. And the note I wrote and put up and how it said, your own show on CNBC? Wouldn't a lemonade stand be more profitable? <laughs> and we all went wild. And Geraldo wrote on the note, fuck you, you know, which is so fun, you know. And Daltrey did not get along with Pete Townsend. And the note I wrote for, that I that he signed was like, Roger, when you guys were on stage, did you ever hope that when Pete was doing that stupid windmill, he'd hit himself in his big nose and knock himself out? <laughs> and it was classic. And of course, they're laughing. Everybody's laughing. I'm, whoever knows, those, I'm sure those lines are all on YouTube somewhere. And here I have the note. And then he caught us doing it. He caught me doing it. And I got berated forever and ever for harassing, you know, the celebrities, which they didn't care. They loved me. You know, we had so much fun. And, uh, but that that's an example of, of some of the, you know, like, uh, okay. So they, he caught you sending the stuff in advance or having them. No, sign no, it? He just got wind that uh, we were having people sign. Oh, how can you, how can you be so rude to our guests? And meanwhile, the minute they walked into the show, they were up their nose with a camera, like for the E show, you know, he like, he has, uh, Barbara Streisand sisters, Rosalind kind. And, uh, uh, What's bigger, your husband's penis or your sister's nose? That's <laughs> just great. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So now Howard has a team of writers. When you were finished with Howard 2003 or so, were you still the only writer? Uh, well, I wrote and Fred would hand me ideas. Fred, Fred is the guts of that operation. Uh, when I got there, he had written every song parody. He never wrote lines for Howard, but he did all the bits and recorded everything and did the voices. And he just super, super brilliant. And I was so thrilled. And we were, we were, we were Lennon McCartney of song parodies. We just fit like a glove. And he loved going to it with me on the air. He wouldn't argue with, or he wouldn't go to it with anybody else because nobody else could handle him, you know, but me and him was like an even match because we could fuck with each other. And then a couple, a couple of years before I left, all of a sudden Howard stuck this guy, Benji, right next to me in my space. And Howard's agent, you know, just I'm sure to make me realize that, you know, I could be replaced. So it was like putting Robin, putting somebody next to Robin and saying, you know, why don't you do this, this newscast instead? Or sit next to Fred and say, don't use that cart, use this cart. And it was very unnecessary because we were. Such a smooth, well-oiled machine. It was like clockwork. For years and years, we didn't even write a bit. 
you know, Howard would sit down and start talking. I'd start writing. Fred would start playing sounds. Robin would giggle. And we would just, and it'd be four or five hours later. And, you know, at the end, of, I'd stand up and I'd go, that was a great show. And they would make fun of me, but it usually was a great show. You know, we get done, we'd laugh for four hours. I go, that was a great show. And it was just. At what point, at what point did you start to make real money working the not show? Not till later on, you know, like um, that, what happened was I started so low. You know, if somebody's giving you $4 a day and all of a sudden they're giving you $8 a day and they say, hey, we doubled your salary, you know, um, so I started very low and then I walked out. I think that was the fourth time I had walked out um, because it, it just was so unfair. I mean, they were printing money. At one point, I had been off the show for a couple of weeks and uh, <clears throat> Dominic Barber called me up and she said, Jackie, uh, the show really needs you. What are you doing? You got to come back on the show. I said, Dominic, I'm not asking for all that kind of crazy money. I'm really not. I, I deserve more than I'm getting. Oh, come on. It's ridiculous. What, what, what is it? He said, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for $400,000. And he said he almost drove off. The, he, he said, everybody thinks you're making a million and a half and you're asking for two and a half. I'm saying, no, I was making 300000 I wanted to make 400000 We had doubled the amount of you know, stations, blah, blah, blah. You know, I had uh, totally rational th thoughts with everything. I was, I never tried to price myself out of the ball game. I just tried to get myself into the ball game. But, uh, you know, but it's up, uh, you're up against City Wall. Not only was I against City Hall, but Fred had been with Howard forever. And Fred is the greatest guy and he's a sweetheart. And he would literally take a bullet for Howard. But I would bet my life that in 40 years, Fred has never said the words, I'd like more. Now, if I'm sitting there next to a guy who's been loyal to Howard from day one and has never asked for anything, and all of a sudden I'm, well, I'm, all of a sudden I'm saying, wait, I want some more. It's like, no, why can't you shut up? They didn't say this, but why can't you shut the fuck up and be like Fred? Was, you know, so yeah, I was just fighting to get some more money. And it was, I wasn't looking for unfair money. I was looking for money that I thought I deserved. Now, when you're talking to your boss or the company, there's always going to be, you think you deserve this and they think you deserve this. And there's always going to be gray area and who's right, who's wrong, who knows. But, you know, I mean, and they wound up banding it about on the air. I'd, I never heard it, but they said, oh yeah, Jackie wanted $2 million. Jackie wanted three, but you know, blah, 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 blah. It, was, it you know. I asked, the, and and the offer that was on the table was more than handsome. And I actually called back a couple of months later and said, listen, if the offer's still there, I'll take it. Because I, you know what, are, are you a radio guy or what, what, I don't even know what you do. Yeah, I'm a, I, a radio and podcast, yeah. Because uh, what I didn't realize when I left the show, it is an so abnormal, such an un, unreal thing for three or four people to sit in a room and laugh for four hours a day. It is a, it's an, it's a illogical situation that just isn't created anywhere else. And it never dawned on me. That's what you miss. You don't miss people saying hello to you on the street or having a million dollars in your bank account, but that the endorphins and the fun and the laughing, you know, the, the actual sitting there and having fun, far surpass walking outside and having people say, Hey, you guys were great today, you know? And, uh, 
But I, I didn't price myself out of the ball game, and then they just didn't come back to me. But I, you know, I was ready. You know, I people that I did a podcast like last night, and that's all they could say is, "Oh, what an idiot! What an idiot! What an idiot!" And I'm like, I'm sitting here, and I'm ten, and I live on the water in a fucking beautiful house with a great girl, and I live the life of Riley, and I look at my pillow and laugh. Fuck you! You know what I mean? <laughs> okay, were you negotiating for yourself, or did you? Have I know I had a guy, I had a great guy, I had Larry Shire from Alan Grubman. Grumman Nadersky. Okay. So how did you end up on 101 when that used to have different programming? That is the that is the question for the ages. Um I didn't go out and do much. Um and uh finally I, my girlfriend at the time said, You gotta go down there opening up the laugh factory at forty at Times Square and uh you know, 8th Avenue and, and 42nd Street. It's a big grand opening. I said, all right. And I went down there and everybody's there. I've seen people in a long time. And they said, you got to get, and I got up and told maybe 10 jokes and hit 10 home runs. And it, it felt so good. And there was this young guy there. And he said, Jackie, I'm such a big fan. He said, that's so great. He said, listen, I'm doing a show on Sirius XM, a request show. And what happens is people call in and they request a comedian. And would you come and join me at noon a couple of days? So I went in and it was great because people call in and say Red Fox or Henny Youngman or something like that. Or if he played something like that. And I had a story about everybody. You know, I'd met them all or for whatever reason. And it was so much fun hanging out with this guy, Phil. And at those days when you walked into Sirius, it was like NASA. I had a big map of the world and the satellites beeping and everything was brand new and everyone was so cheerful. It was so wonderful. There was so much money, you know, obviously put into it. Everybody, it was just a delight. And then at some point, uh, a while later, uh, this guy who was a friend of mine, Toby Ludwig, talked to him. They called me up and said, we would like you to be the voice of Raw Dog. And Raw Dog is a station on Sirius where, I don't know what they do now, but where they play, you know, a big chunk of Dice, a big chunk of Red Fox, a big chunk, you know, dirty, dirty stuff. And I was going to do the rap rounds. Hey, that was Dice. I'm Jackie the Joke Man. Two Jews going to a bar. Ha, ha, ha. All right, here's David Brenner. And it got to where it was, it was ready to be signed. And it was for, it wasn't for Stern money, but it was for a lot of money for a guy that you know, was doing nothing. My 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 accountant told me that uh, when I quit the show, it was like a, I took a nine eleven to my bank account. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> so um, so I'm all of a sudden they say, "Listen, Jackie, we're sorry, the deal is off the table because we think we're going to get Howard Stern here." And I I actually wanted to say to them, "Listen, guys, if you change your mind and you don't want me." So what? This is show business, but you don't have to make up some whopper of a lie because to me, of course, Howard wouldn't come to cable radio because the whole, to me, that whole show was dancing right up to the line and dancing around the line. You know, I, I go to eat at somebody's house. They say, hey, be careful. My grandmother's here. I said, what the fuck? You? We were on the on the air for 18 years and I we, we, we couldn't curse. We, we weren't allowed to be dirty. We, the, the whole point was we were getting right up to it and stomping on the line. And that's what was making everybody crazy. And uh, so I was sure there was no way he was going to satellite. 
And then a couple of months later, big headline, Howard Stern going to Sirius. I was like, oh, well, at least they weren't lying, right? So meanwhile, I'm going in to see Phil once in a while. And in the course of this, that people, everybody's like, Jackie, you got to come see, you got to come see. And they walk me back and show me the Stern Studios as it was in the progress of being made and being set up and everything. I was like, you know, like I give a fuck, but, and then, and I'll never know if this was by design. It, Phil's, Phil's uh, show was at the exact opposite end of Sirius from where the Stern show is. And one day I was on Phil's show and I came walking out. We came walking out of the door and Gary Delabati standing. He says, Hey, Zach. How are you, man? Hey, you want to see the new studio? I said, sure. And I didn't want to get anybody in trouble and say, I've saw it a million times already. So we go walking back and we look around and, it, you know, it's impressive. It's beautiful. Of course it's beautiful. And then we walked out of a different door. And Tim Sabian was there, who at the time was running everything for the Stern channels, who I'd known for, you know, 30 years, whatever. And he goes, hey, Jack, it's good to see you. He said, how come you don't have a show on, on satellite? And I'm like, Nobody ever asked me. He's well, you should have a show on satellite. I'm like, well, tell somebody. I would love that. And then he's talking to me saying, uh, yeah, you know, come in. And I'd go in and talk to him. And like, he's he's a bullshit artist. He's just hems and haws. You know, he's rich. You know, his whole life is making deals. Once a deal's made, he's got nothing to do. So finally, I'm, one, I'm like, Tim, this is bullshit. I want a show. And I turn around and he had a big. Uh, calendar of the week, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you know, and all the different slots. I look and said, look, Tuesday, five o'clock is open. I'll take Tuesday, five to six. And he goes, okay. And so then, uh, you know, you better talk to Howard. Okay. And then me and Howard, you know, went out to lunch or went out to dinner. And uh, he said, oh, so I hear you're trying to get a show on Sirius. I'm like, no, I'm, you know, Tim asked me if I wanted a show, you know, like I'll never know whether Gary fetched me and led me to Tim. And then Tim asked me because I don't know whether they were worried I was going to go on some other station and have a radio show and talk about I, who knows. Maybe it was totally happenstance. Who cares? But at any rate, I said, yeah, I would really like that show. I think it'd be really fun. And uh, and that's how I wound up with the show. And then, of course, it became, oh, yeah, Jackie came crawling to me for a gig. So what the fuck? I gave him a job. You know, you know, you just learn to live with that shit, you know. And uh, so we did it for eight years. We did 402 Jackie's joke cunts. And uh, it was an hour of dirty jokes, short jokes, long jokes, listener jokes, guest told jokes. It was so funny, so fun. I had the original cast of Jersey Boys. I had Sid Bernstein, Pat Cooper, the Tokens, a whole, a whole uh, smattering of of who's who's that, you know. And everybody told a joke. I told a joke. Ian, my uh, co-part, my partner, told a joke. The engineer told a joke. The guy working the board told a joke. The guy answering the phones told a joke. The guests told a joke. It, and it just was a free for all. And we, the jokes went on and on and on and on. And, and they replayed, they replayed it like five or six times a week, you know, which was great for me, you know, which I loved. And then after like six years, one day we walked in and, and, uh, said that before we got a chance to tell Tim, 
we want to raise, you know, they, we, they made a deal with us and then paid us much less than the deal was supposed to be. And then we went on like that for six years. Then we went in to tell him we want more money. And that's when he said, we're cutting you down to once a month. And I said, it makes no sense to do a show once a month. I said, just pay us for once a month and we'll st- still do it once a week. So our pay got slashed by a quarter. And then it was like uh, by the end of the eighth year, close to the eighth year, they out of a clear blue sky, they decided to let us go a week before Thanksgiving. And they were having a huge, now you can interpret this how you want. They're having a huge party for Howard's 60th birthday. And it's a Sirius XM is throwing the party for Howard. We're not only on Sirius XM, me and Ian, but we're on Howard's channel 101 on Sirius XM. And the entire world is invited to Howard's birthday party, except for me and Ian. Now you... You can interpret that how yeah, I you I countless friends said, Jackie, can I be your plus one at Howard's party? And I would tell them we're not invited. And nobody believed us. Just no it was it was pretty, pretty impossible to believe, but not for me. Because I know, because I know if one person walked up to Howard as his 60th birthday party and said, Howard, man, it's great to see Jackie again. That would have wrecked this fucking night. And I, I, okay, I know that, that sounds that unbelievable. That question for the ultimate time. Huh? Uh, so what is your uh, relationship with Howard these you days? You know, there is none. Um, I'm sure if somebody said, how's your relationship with Jackie? He'd say, fine. You know, people say, are you guys still friends? And I, I'm not comfortable saying I'm still friends with somebody that I haven't physically seen in, in five or seven years. I, I went on the show maybe seven or eight years ago to promote something you know, briefly. And it was great. And, you know, there's things that sound pompous that aren't really pompous. It's funny because I just read about this in Jackie Gleason's biography and it just struck me great. I have Howard's funny bone, which sounds like a a made up thing, but there's some people that you, the chemistry between people, I can make him laugh at will. I just can't. Just we're from the same place. We have. It's it's hard to explain, but I can bury him very easily. Not not something haha funny that anybody else would laugh at, but I got his funny bone, and and he can't help it. But he likes me a lot, and it's it's very weird. And he really had Sophie's choice because he you know he was already so so rich, and he had a guy sitting right next to him that made him laugh. For four hours, forget about making the people laugh, made him laugh for four hours a day. He went to work knowing he was going to have a good time every day. And he let that go, which is a, it's a tough call. I, I, you know, I can never put my finger on it. And I, it's not, and I'm not flipping a coin. I mean, I can make the guy laugh and it's, it's a little bit weird. I don't know. At one point, I said to him, you know what, if we, we could make a lot, you could make a lot of money for charity. Somebody just said, all right, let's put Howard and Jackie in a room by themselves for a half hour on New Year's Eve some night. You know, I would love to say to him, let's sit and have a talk on cable and charge money and, and give the money to charity or whatever. But he, he just never would do it. I, you know, no writers, no extra people, no Robin giggling, just us fucking around, you know, but. 
he he's not built for a level playing field, you know. But uh, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to put your finger on, you know. I mean, I got birthday okay. cards from him. I, I am are, sure that Howard's got his take on it, but that's not what we're covering. Oh no, I would love to, I would give anything to hear his take on it. You know, it would be oh, okay. well, Jackie's stupid. He walked away from a lot of money. I didn't really need him. I was doing him a favor. You know, I, I I've never heard his take on it, but I'm sure it would be it. It would be dismissive. It wouldn't be expl- ex- it wouldn't be an explanation. It would be dismissive. Well, whatever history you guys have is between the two of you. But do you ever, or since you've been off the show, ever listen to it? That's another thing that people always ask me, and it's very funny because I never listened to it uh, when I was on it. I never listened to best of when we're on vacation. I have never listened to two seconds of it. And what's really funny is the only time I really listened to the show was when I first met him because I had no idea what was going on. And that's how I found out he he used to do a character, uh, a black traffic reporter named Mama Look a Boo Boo Day. And I gave him a whole bunch of uh, black type jokes, you know, like uh, weird, weird stuff for that for that character. And when I came back in the next week, or two weeks later, I handed it to him. He looked at me like, I don't need this, you know. And then I was listening to the show and I heard him using some of the stuff I had given him. So the next time I walked in, I said, hey, here's some jokes. And he was like, you know, thank you. But what's really funny is I was listening to the show. This was like, this had to be 1983. I had just joined the show. And I love the story because I was in the kitchen at the house I was renting, me and Nancy were renting, and I was standing on a stool in the kitchen, a step stool, fixing something. And the reason I remember is because I don't fix anything. I have no idea why I was, but I was up on this step, stepping stool and Gary came in and said, Hey, Howard, the girl here says she wants to get naked. And he said, really? Well, have her come in. And she came in. She said, hi, Howard. He said, hi. And he says, have a seat. He says, "Uh, who are you? And she says, my name's Maria, and I work the door at the Comedy Factory Outlet in Philadelphia, and my favorite comedian is Jackie Martling. And I almost fell off the fucking stool. I have not heard, I've never spoken to one person that remembers hearing that or ever has heard. I don't know if it exists on Best Of or whether it was chopped out, but I couldn't make up that story, but that was way, way, way back. And, you know, I, I, I would just listen once I listened and got the gist of what he was doing and I would give him some jokes. I didn't, I didn't listen like to see if he was using any, you know, I, I was just, I was just trying to get my foot in the door. That's all I cared about. Uh, you know? I gotcha. So uh, of your tenure there, what are two or three highlights other than bullshitting with the gang and having fun? Um, sitting knees to, you know, the first, well, actually, the second studio we had was so tiny that where I sat, the guests sat at a 45-degree angle to me, so close that literally my right knee would just about be banging their left knee. And we had James Taylor on the show, and he sat there and sang four songs, knees to knees with me, and in between songs, I'm writing insults about James Taylor, who I fucking love beyond any stretch of the imagination. And 
we're sitting there and our knees are touching. And I said to myself, you know, I bet you nobody has ever sat this close to James Taylor when he sang before, because there would be no reason for anybody, even if they were a fan, they would never go up and put their seat this close. It was like, it was, it was absolutely surreal. And that strikes me as so great. Um, another unbelievable time was, uh, a guy came in, he was sitting in the same exact place and Howard started with his regular crap. Uh, you know, like, hey, man, thanks for coming in. All right. Hey, hey, you, well, tell me, how big is your penis? And the guy was like, don't, don't start with me, man. You don't start with me. I'm not your dancing monkey, man. I'll come right over. And right away, Gary and Ronnie are right behind him. I mean, this guy went from zero to 60 in a flash, and he was crazy hot. And I said to myself, Jesus Christ, this, this guy's going to kill somebody. And it was Robert Blake. <laughs> That is funny. That is very funny. Scary, but funny. Oh, my God. And and one time we're sitting there and um, 6.15 in the morning, just bursting through the door was Sam Kinison, Pat McCormick, Chuck McCann, and Jack Riley from the old Newhart show. They had, Sam had got done in, at the comic at the comedy uh, comedy factory, whatever it's called, the uh, the comedy in Los Angeles, and uh, he said, "Come on, guys, let's go see, see the Howard Stern show." And they hopped in his jet and did coke all the way to New York and came bursting in at six fifteen in the morning, and they were right behind me. And I'm looking at the, looking at the Mount Rushmore of comedy. It was like just unbelievable. And, you know, and stuff like that just went on. And, you know, we're in England. For a week, we broadcast from the room, the room in Abbey Road where it all happened. The actual fucking room in Abbey Road. I never, to this day, I get the chills thinking about it. And then we went to the Princess Trust concert and we're sitting up in one of these little, you know, ballrooms doing radio. And the Bee Gees sat across from me, Howard and Robin. And sang a cappella from from me to the screen, you know. I mean, I could go on and on. I, I thought that shit was just like, and it was happening so fast, you didn't get a chance to digest anything. You know, I was just going through my notes and I found a scanned letter from Kurt Vonnegut that he had written in 1945 to his family on an old typewriter. And it was signed. I mean, it was a scan, but it was a scan he must have signed it and given it to some people because it said season's greetings, 1996. And it was a guy who was a fan out. And, you know, these people that were fans were like, what can we do for the, you know, and they knew Howard got everything. So they'd send occasionally, they send stuff to me or Fred or Gary. It, it, it was beyond exciting. And it just, it just went on and on and on. Uh, okay. So who are the greatest comedians ever? Me. Leaving you out of it. Bill Maher says the same thing about himself. We're taking you out of it. No, they, there is there is no greatest. You know, and I am not a fair judge because I don't know. I You know, people say, who's the, well, who do you who's the greatest? Who do you like? To me, the new comedian is Chris Rock. You know what I mean? I'm not. Okay. I'm, I was the hugest. I don't, I don't want to go deep no, here. No, I was I'm the talking about famous fan people. I'm not world. looking for you to come up with unknown I names. was the hugest fan in the world of Rodney Dangerfield. And the fact that I wound up in step with him is so beyond anything. Like, 
I wasn't a comic. I had no intention of ever becoming a comic because it never dawned on me that that was a choice anybody could make. You know, I always thought show business, you had to be chosen. I'll ne- I, there's some things I remember so vague, so vividly. <clears throat> in my band in college, there was this big fat drummer, Nick Petrovich, and we had just all started getting together. And I, 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 I'm, I'm, it just goes to show what an idiot I am. Somebody said, Nick, what's your major? And he said, radio and TV. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I was like, what, what, what do you mean? That's not your major. You don't get to choose that. That chooses you. You know, you don't, it never dawned on me that was a path that you could choose and pursue as stupid as that sounds. And as far as being a comedian, I never knew it was something you could work towards. I thought they just anointed you just like class clown. Like somebody said, all right, you know, George Carlin, you're going to be really funny or whatever. And, uh, I had no intention of being a comic. But I love to laugh at Henny Youngman's jokes. And when I was in the band, we had all of Red Fox's old albums because they were just filthy jokes, filthy jokes. And I was a great laugh. My mother's favorite thing was to watch me watch Red Skelton because I got such a kick out of Red Skelton enjoying himself and laughing at himself. So she'd watch me because I would howl watching him. And I'm sure I became that. But Rodney, you know, he would go on and then we'd all call each other up and quote the lines back and forth and back and forth. And when I first started toying with comedy, uh, this, there were a couple of guys working at this place called Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn and Dixon wouldn't pay us. So me and this guy, Richie Minavini, decided to start our own show, which is where I recorded my first album. But when we first start and I'm living at a house after my grandmother died and Richie would stay there sometimes and comics lie. In the beginning, comics lied. Well, still lie. Because you want, you know, you got to build yourself up. And Richie came in one night and says, hey, man, I went on a danger fields tonight and I killed, man. And Rodney saw me. Rodney loved me. He's going to use me on TV. It was greatest, man. I can't. And I tell you, I when I repeat that right now, I'm still jealous. So I said, you know what? And I sat down and took paper and made carbons. And every joke that I told or that I knew or that I could think of that I could put in Rodney's speak, I typed out. I typed out six pages of jokes. One of the jokes that I had come across a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine was in Peru selling and buying cocaine and doing cocaine. And he called me from Peru and he said, Chief. This guy just told me the funniest fucking joke I ever heard. You got to stay awake. I know you're probably drunk, but stay awake. You got to hear this. And he told me this joke by Tennessee Bob. And I thought it was really funny. And I wrote it down. So among the six pages of jokes that I sent to Rodney was this joke. I wrote these, I wrote these jokes all out, <clears throat> folded them up, put them in an envelope. And the next time Richie came into my house, I said, Richie, please do me a favor and give these jokes to your friend Rodney. And Richie got embarrassed. He said, oh, man. He said, I lied. He said, I didn't meet Rodney. He, I didn't even get on stage that night. But, but I did go. I swear to God, I went. This true story, you don't have to believe it, Bob. He reached his pocket and took out a matchbook. And it said, you know, Rodney going, you know, 1001 First Avenue, New York, New York. There's the address. I just wrote 
the address underneath where I'd written Ronnie Dangerfield on the envelope. I'd already written the jokes. They were already in the envelope. What do I got to lose? I put on a stamp and put it in the mail. And two days later, the phone rings and nobody knows the phone number there. My grandmother's dead. Everybody she knew were, were dead. So who the hell would call there? Pioneer 62541. You, you learn that when you're three years old, your grandmother's phone number. The phone rings. I answer. I go, hello? Hello. Who's this? It's Rodney. I said, Rodney who? Oh, I knew you were fucking funny. I knew you were funny. And my girlfriend's like, who is it? I said, it's Rodney Dangefield. She said, bullshit. Who is it, Richie? It's fucking Rodney. Hey, you know, some funny shit here. Some really funny. This fucking two-bag is the funniest fucking joke I ever read, you know? The joke that he fell in love with was the girl was known as a Tennessee two-bagger. That's a girl who's so ugly, you not only got to put a bag over her head, you got to put a bag over your own head in case her bag rips. Well, he went fucking nuts for that. And he said, here, come to Westbury. You know, come to Westbury. You know, I'm going to buy, I think, four of these jokes. I love them. You know, come on, be, be my guest. Bring your girl. So I went to, we went to see him in Westbury. It's like 1977. I got a ponytail down my back and torn jeans. And I got a girlfriend 10 years younger who was beautiful. And he's fucking, his eyes are spinning. You know, he's like, oh, she's fucking beautiful. Have a piece of fruit. Some funny fucking jokes here. I'm going to buy them. Yeah, you all look at her. Wow. Not, but what's with the fucking hair? Look at the jeans. What the fuck is wrong? She's very pretty. You know, like, bleh, 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 bleh. and that was that. And I was off and running. He bought four jokes for 200 bucks. And, uh, and here I am in in step, and I badgered him and badgered him till he took away took me away with him. And we went to Fort Lauderdale for a week, and Las Vegas for a week. And it was I'm still still pulling stories out of my ass about those two weeks. Forty years later. Okay, do you ever write jokes, or the jokes come to you? I write them, but not a lot of them. Um, and and also, if you write a short joke. It's it's pretty tough to to ha- write something, you know. As a student of jokes, I, I mean, I was I've been I was pen pals with a guy named Gershon Legman for twenty years before I put one of the jokes that I really really love in my joke book. This guy wrote these incredibly thick, pedantic, unbelievable joke collections, and I came across it. All my stories are way too long. Like I said, in the in the 70s, we were doing everything we could to get material and find jokes and joke books. And in the back of some magazine, it was like any 10 books for 99 cents. And one of the books said, Rationale of the Dirty Joke. I said, for 99 cents. So I sent whatever the other books were. I threw them out and looked at this thing. Big, thick book. And it was all went on and on about jokes, but the guy was kind enough to put the actual jokes in italics so you could read it like a joke book. And the introduction was like 30 pages long. And the guy goes on and on and on. And at the end of the introduction, he had his name and his, his address. And you know me, and I'm reading, and it says, this is part two of the two book collection. This is 1978. There's, there's no internet. I wrote the guy a letter. I sent my cassettes. I sent my jokes and everything. I said, listen, I don't know if you'll ever get this, but I'm a comic. I would give anything to have a copy of that first volume of your series. And the guy wrote me back a couple weeks later. It's like, Jackie, I really enjoy your stuff. You're so funny. I got two copies of the first series of my book. 
I don't need two. I'll sell you one of them. And he sold it to me for $18. And I still have it. And it says, and it's signed by Gershon Legman. It turns out you, you can't read it. It's like the Bible. It so goes on. And it's so packed, packed with jokes. And one day I happened to notice, like I had heard the aristocrats joke from a guy named Martin Lewis, a comedian, a magician comedian from Los Angeles. And I'd been telling the aristocrats for years. And I'm looking at Legman's. And the aristocrats is the last joke on the last page of the second volume of his series. And I couldn't believe it. And his whole premise is you are thoroughly defined by what you find funny. And he said, this next joke was told to me by a magician comedian who was raised in squalor by parents that battled for 40 years but stayed together for the good of the family. And I said, holy fuck, this guy just described my life. And so 20 years later, I'm writing a joke book. So I made the last page of my joke book, The Aristocrats, just like Legman had. And then 10 years later, Paul Provenza and Penn Jillette come into my apartment and said, Jackie, we're making a, a, a movie about The Aristocrats, and we got to put you in the movie because we did a search on the web and we only got two hits for the aristocrats, and they were both your website. Because I had Legman's version, and I had my version. And if you look at the poster for the aristocrats, I don't play. It's every famous comic you've ever heard of in your in your life with me thrown in the middle. I mean, they're all head and shoulders above me, but it was just 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 so fucking interesting. And there was a joke that was so Rodney. If ever there was a joke that somebody sat down and wrote specifically for Rodney, there was this joke. And I here it is in the Legman book. It's two guys talking in the Civil War. And there's the joke. And I'm like, and I'm I'm like, there is nothing new. And the joke was, yeah, you know, you know, uh, my wife, I don't know, you know, she cut me down to twice a week, but that's nothing. I know a couple of guys she cut out altogether. Which is so funny. And it's two Civil War guys and two black guys. And one guy said, yeah, this rationing is crazy. They, they're rationing everything. They're rationing cigarettes and they're rationing vegetables. Another guy says, yeah. He says, my wife cut me down twice a week. And the other guy says, yeah, well, I know some guys she cut out altogether. There's the joke. But, but it fits Rodney. That, that's joke writing. Real re repackaging and, and reassigning that's that's the game of comedy but people don't realize that you know i've been around so long it's it, nothing slips by you know like uh here and there you know the other day somebody told me a joke and i and i said i wrote that and then i'm saying you know what i'm sure five thousand people right why do jewish girls swallow because they want to be the spitting images of their mothers okay <laughs> which is it's a funny dirty joke but who cares who came up with it? Okay, it's, how about to people who tell tales like Dave Chappelle today or Richard Lewis? Isn't there yeah, stuff? That, those are two different. You know, that's as different as, you know, one guy throws batting practice and the other guy hits home runs and one guy pitches no hitters and another guy plays hockey. You know, you know they're, they're all playing sports. It's completely different. You know, I mean, I love stories. I, lo I love nothing better than sit and tell a story. I loved writing my book more than doing my, you know, people read my book. And they're like, holy Christ, that's, that's some interesting shit, you know.
but that's not what I do. You know, All right. What, what's your favorite joke? I always tell people my favorite jokes, the last joke that got a big laugh. Um, so what's the last joke that got a big laugh? The, the one that I like telling when I, when I do, I do cameo.com slash Jackie Martling and people say, Oh, uh, my mother likes poop jokes or do this for my sister. She's got a Jewish husband. She loves Jewish jokes or do this for my uncle. Oh, he really likes a uh, hand job, you know, whatever. And I do whatever. And some jokes I just, and I put this in very often. A, a girl goes to a high school prom and the next day she sends her mother a text. Mom, the prom was great, but now mom, I'm at the beach and I'm freaking out. I got cum in my hair. So her mother sends her back a text. Honey, I'm glad the prom was great. Listen, sometimes when you're blowing a guy and he decides to shoot on your face and he pulls it out of your mouth, they can't really control where it goes. And sometimes some of it goes in your hair, but it's not a big deal. Just jump in the water. It'll wash right out. If <laughs> she sends her mother back a text, mom, thanks for the information, but I meant to type gum. <laughs> well, that's the same joke. You know, the joke about the person who's uh, tapping your Wi-Fi. you know, that one, right? But yeah, it's, of course they're, they, you know, they, Same thing. Everything's mixed and matched, you know. Okay. So, you know, we live in a politically incorrect era. Can you tell these ethnic jokes? I don't care. You know, I backed off. I just do what's funny. You know, I, I know I, my act now is like 50 minutes or an hour joke. So I don't do a lot of black jokes, a lot of Jewish jokes. Blah, blah, blah. I don't say Polish so much. It's not that I can't, you know, it's not even necessary. You know, I'm old now. You don't, you don't need to be two Jewish guys going down the street in a car. You be two guys going down the street in a car. It's just, it's just as funny because we're all old and all confused, you know. Um, Have you gotten in any trouble for telling uh, off-color jokes? Never, ever, ever. One time when I just started, I got a job working a bachelor party and I, where I come from, it's weird. Long Island is crazy. We're all horny. We're all out of our minds, but nobody really had bachelor parties with strippers. And that was like a New Jersey thing. And I get invited. I'm going to do this bachelor party. It was a lot of money. I think it was like $75, which was a fortune back then. I wasn't on the radio. Nobody knew who I was. And no, I would take my amplifier and sit on the amplifier and play songs and tell jokes. I brought my friend Red with me. I said, come on, we're going to go do this bachelor party. <clears throat> and I sat there on my amplifier. It was about maybe 12, maybe 20 guys in a semicircle standing there in front of me watching me. And I'm doing my jokes and then insulting the crowd. You know, the guy saying something. Like, but, and I played a song and I looked up and I said something insulting. And this guy walked through the crowd and grabbed me. And bent me over my amplifier and said, you motherfucker, you talk like that to me. I'm like, man, I wasn't looking at anybody. This is my act. I was just fucking around. I wasn't talking to you. That's the only time in 40 years anything like that ever happened. And it was, I thought, wow, this is, this is things to come. Because you hear about Jackie Gleason getting beaten up and Rickles getting his nose broken and everything. Meanwhile, the, I get done doing my thing. And then the next thing I know, we're all sitting there in chairs. 
<clears throat> and there's this little stage and the, the girl comes out and the, lies down the groom, lies down the groom and pulls down his pants. And I'm sitting beside the groom's father and the groom's fucking father-in-law-to-be. And they're sitting on either side of me. And this girl sucks the guy's cock. And all the guys are cheering. And I'm like, what fucking planet? And then she went in the bathroom and the guys were all in line. I'm like, what? What? I was like, I was in Pluto. You know, like, it was the oddest thing. You know, and I, I, that was one of those crazy days. I thought, wow, I got a lot coming up in my future here. And nothing like that ever happened before or since. I mean, lots of sex, lots of craziness, but not like that. I mean, his father, bad enough, but his father-in-law, you know, like, oh. So, so that was, you know, but one time the people from the Polish Eagle in West Orange uh, wrote to me and threatened me and said, look, we shut down. Joan Rivers will shut you down. We hear what you're doing, blah, blah, blah. Yuck, yuck, yuck. You, you, you hate the Pope, the Polish Pope. You make blah, 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 blah. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I think I wrote him a letter and said, to just come by. Just come by the show. The next time I was at Rascals, a bunch of these guys came by the show. And they came up afterwards and said, you told jokes about everybody. It was the funniest act we ever saw. I said, well, I told you. And, and that was that. The Polish Eagle. Their, their newsletter was mimeograph. Are you old enough to remember mimeograph? Of course. The and you used to letters, smell it, the, the whole thing in school. Smell it. Yeah. <laughs> but I've skated, you know, <clears throat> and, and I never changed things. You know, if I was telling a black joke, I would look at the black guys. The one time in my life that I actually skipped anything, <laughs> I was, I was, I was, packed show like 400 people at in Boca Raton at the New York comedy club. And I killed there when I went there. I had so much fun. And <clears throat> I looked down and sitting ringside right in fucking front of me was a midget couple, not a midget, a midget couple. I mean, and their legs were dangling and I had like, like, you know, five, six, seven midget chokes in a row in my act. <clears throat> and I thought, you know what? It's going to look like I, I threw that in just to be mean to them. And I, and I just leaped over that. I didn't, I, you know, I got enough stuff. I could go on for hours and hours and hours. And I just, and I always felt a little hypocritical that I skipped that because I maintained it. You know, I'm just fucking around. And, you know, usually it means, oh, that stuff's really funny, you know? So who knows? But it, it never, it never stops being interesting, Bob. I'll tell you that. It never stops being interesting. Okay. So now what? What do we got in the uh, sunset years of Jackie Martling's life? They just finished the documentary on me, uh, which is so fun. Uh, Willie Nelson, Mark Cuban, Penn Gillette, Artie Lang, a cast of my family, cast of characters. I'm sure you'll really enjoy it. I put out my autobiography, which I would love to send to you, The Joke Man. Out of Stern. Uh, I just got a deal to do the second half of that, which is already written. I I, I had too much for one book. <clears throat> uh, I'm doing the cameo.com, which I love. I'm, I'm selling a lot of those things and people are getting off on them. Um, you know, I'm not I'm never gonna stop doing my stupid act once the COVID lifts. You know, I, I sometimes I make a lot of money, sometimes I don't make so much money, but I, you know. I'll do a firehouse. I'll do a club. I'll do a theater. I, I, 
I actually, I actually enjoy it, you know? Okay. Any goals that you still have at this point? I was always sad that I didn't have, you know, I had, I had a little role on leverage one time and I did so good. And then they wrote me into a whole episode and I said no to it because my nephew was graduating from college and he's, his father had passed away. And like, I, I, I don't, God knows where that might've led. <clears throat> I never got, you know, people every day are like, why aren't you doing cartoons? Why aren't you doing voiceovers? I'm like, I don't know. I auditioned for a million of them. You know, I stand in the line at the bank. People turn around and say, Jackie, oh, I know that voice anywhere. Why aren't you doing cartoons? But I never did. You know, I always wanted to put out a, a CD of my songs, but I circled, circled around and did that. And I'll love to send you that. You'll get a kick out of that. Um, you know, it was with the best players in the world. So it's really fun. But um, I'm sure, you know, I, I just got offered this thing. I, I think I'm wind up doing a streaming show of some kind, with, either with young comics or old comics or talking to people. I love to talk about old show business, but everybody's not enthralled with that. I, I am voracious. I wouldn't, I would have had a working iPod if I had to spend four hours this afternoon reading about Jackie Gleason. You just did. It's all fascinating. The old, old stuff when they were first starting. You know, what, what, what is fascinating about it? Just because, because every, you, you think you went through a fight, you went to, you think you went through a maze, you went through craziness. Nobody just walked down the aisle and walked up on the stage. You know, everybody has their, their story and it's, it's, it's just interesting. It's just interesting to me, you know, and it, ins it inspires you. Makes you glad you kept going. I'll tell you, my life is, is a pinball machine. It just was like, bing, 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 bing. You know, uh, <clears throat> I started playing the guitar, then played guitar in high school, then played guitar in college, then played guitar in the 70s, and then that didn't go anywhere, so I started telling my jokes on stage, and then I stumbled into Howard Stern, wound up on the radio, but I kept doing my comedy and putting my CDs out, and then wound up being a comedian without ever looking three weeks in a, all I know is when I started telling my jokes on stage in 1979, after every three or four months, I would look back and I realized, I would realize I had made more money than I had the previous three months. So I just stayed on the path. Oh, okay. And I got so, lucky. I bumped into Howard. People like, oh, you're so lucky you bumped into Howard Stern. I said, yeah, I am. And he's lucky he bumped into me, which once again is pompous, but I don't care. It made a difference. Okay. You know? So let's just assume you never worked again. You got enough money to get to the end. You know what Jackie Mason says when you ask them, you ask them no. that. I never have to work again unless <laughs> I want to buy something. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm fine. My house is paid. Well, I got a million dollar house here on the water and you know, I got my after and, uh, you know, and I mean, I would never not work. It's not, you know, if, if I'm not working, that means I'm dead. You know what I mean? So, do I have to work? Not really. You know, I got, I got so much stern memorabilia. At some point, I'm going to start selling that off with just, just for the fun of pissing everybody off, you know? <laughs> okay, Jackie, this has been wonderful. We could go on for another two hours. Maybe we'll do that at another time. It's great to hear the story. And I think we covered some stuff that's not in your book. Is that true? What I, what I always tell interviewers, oh, excuse me. I'm sorry. You were the first. <laughs> what I always tell interviewers is, listen, if your listeners happen to enjoy this interview and 
number one, they might not believe something or they might want to hear more about something or they have a question about something that they didn't hear anything about. I always say, do me a favor, just tell them to write you questions. And next time we do this, you, you know, they might think of questions that you wouldn't necessarily think of or you wouldn't realize they want. And, and we'll go into the questions and we'll have a merry old time. I, I could do this for hours. You know, people come up to me and say, oh, I loved you on the Howard Stern show, but I'm sure you get sick of hearing that. I said, if I ever get sick of hearing that, put a bullet in my head. You know, I love it. It was great fun and it's still great fun. I, one other thing, I, I got a guy that answers all my email, me. <laughs> so anybody that writes me, I write back. Jokeland at AOL.com. J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D at AOL.com. Write to me. I'll write you back. I love hearing from people and uh, old girlfriends. You know, that's so funny because you were saying you ever hear talk to old people and blah, blah, blah. And then we took a break and I came out and picked up my phone. And it was this girl that I was so in love with in the 70s that I wrote most of the songs that I wrote in the 70s. And here she is. I said, I was just talking about not you, but about the concept of you, you know. There's a song, Oh, the Concept of You. You better tell me to shut up, Bob, because I'll just keep talking. No, 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 okay. Do you hear from this woman on a regular basis? No, we just happened to get in touch about six months ago. It's a year ago. And okay, so did you see each other face to face? No, no, I haven't seen her in 20 years, 30 years, but she was great, you know, and it was at the high time when my band was really cooking and we finagled the house on the water and she lived two houses away and she was a school teacher. You know, I was 29, she was 27 and, but I had no money and I was a bum and I was a drunk and she came from a house full of drunks. So she, you know, kept me at arm's length, which we all know attracts a man like nothing else. So, (laughs) and then, you know, this used to be a cash business. So I assume it was a cash business during your career prior to Howard Stern. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, no, no. Once I hit the stone show, yes, it actually, it stopped being a cash business. It's still sometimes, well, yeah, before that, oh yeah, no, my first paycheck was, uh, from, uh, K-Rock, you know, I never got a paycheck from NBC, you know, I, I actually the governors was cash, but that was, that was on the books. That was a comedy club where we actually made good money. Me and my girlfriend, Nancy booked the acts, hosted the acts, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a lot of a lot of cash. At, at one point, I had so much cash, and then all of a sudden, you look and it's not there. You know, that's the nature of cash. Okay, I am going to cut you off because we will go on forever. Jackie, thanks so much for doing this. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.